Let us move on into our teaching for this morning. Today we are in 2 Samuel chapter 4 as we continue our series in the life of David. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 4 today as we continue looking at the struggle to establish David's kingdom. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's all right because we will have the text up on the screens next to me so you can follow along there. Once again, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 4. We are going to read and cover the whole chapter today, but the good news is that it's only 12 verses, so it's not that much. All right, so once again, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 4. If it looks as though we're all ready to start, then I'll go ahead and read there. Like I said, if you had trouble finding it, we'll have it up here on the screens next to me so you can follow along. In 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, When Saul's son, Ishbosheth, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he gave up, and all Israel was dismayed. Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding parties, one named Bana and the other Rechab, sons of Remen, the Beerthorite of the Benjaminites. Beeroth is also considered part of Benjamin, and the Beerothites fled to Gitaim and still reside there as aliens today. Saul's son, Jonathan, uh, Saul's son Jonathan had a son whose feet were crippled. He was five years old when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nanny picked him up and fled, but as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Rechab and Bana, the sons of Remen the Beerthorite, set out and arrived at Ishbosheth's house during the heat of the day while the king was taking a midday nap. They entered the interior of the house as if to get wheat and stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Bana escaped. They had entered the house while Ishbosheth was lying on his bed in his bedroom and stabbed and killed him. They removed his head, took it, and traveled by the way of the Arabah all night. They brought Ishbosheth's head to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who intended to take your life. Today the Lord has granted vengeance to my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. But David answered Rechab and his brother Bana, sons of Reman the Bethorite, As the Lord lives, the one who has redeemed my life from every distress, when the person told me, look, Saul is dead, he thought he was a bearer of good news, but I seized him and put him to death at Ziklag. That was my reward to him for his news. How much more when wicked men kill a righteous man in his own house, on his own bed? So now, should I not require his blood from you and purge you from the earth? So David gave orders to the young men, and they killed Rechab and Banah. They cut off their hands and feet and hung their bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took Ishbosheth's head and buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron. I say this a lot, but I'll go ahead and say it again after rereading that, that chapter. That uh, if you think the Bible's boring, then you're probably just not reading it. Right? Uh, that would be that chapter would be uh, rated R if it were turned, or, or worse, if it were turned into any uh, accurate <laughs> description or you know, any accurate film. Um, 
but here we are continuing in the life of David, and we are in the, the period where there is the transition of power, in the period where there's the transition from the former kingdom, which was the kingdom of Saul and his household, to the kingdom of David. If you've been with us the past couple of weeks, you remember, if you're familiar with uh, second, the beginning of 2 Samuel, uh, it, things didn't go smoothly. After Saul and Jonathan died, there was this other puppet kingdom that was set up to try to keep Saul's household going. It was set up by the head of Saul's army, his, his master general uh, named Abner. He took uh, Saul's only remaining son named Ishbosheth, and he set him up as this puppet king. And they essentially had uh, control or the allegiance of all the northern tribes of Israel. And David was reigning in the uh, south of Israel with only one tribe following him, which was the tribe of Judah. They existed in this tension for a while. They entered into a civil war for a period. There was battle. There was much bloodshed. Eventually, they came to a peace agreement, but Abner the general was assassinated by one of David's generals. Uh, so, and, and then now we come to this chapter here where Ishbosheth, after hearing that Abner, who was really the one in control, like I said before, Ishbosheth is really just kind of a puppet king. He hears about this, he gives up, but then even he is slain by assassins. So, this whole uh, story and section of transition of the kingdom and, uh, and so on, like I said, is pretty messy. It's pretty messy. Uh, it's not, it doesn't go extremely smoothly, and there, there's a lot of different things going on. There's a lot of different chances for David's kingdom to be undermined, to be overtaken, uh, or to lose its legitimacy. David has to deal with all these different stressors, and he has to deal with all of these different problems and issues. Now, just put yourself in David's shoes. Do you think that David, after all that he had been through, imagine whenever David was going through the wilderness time. He was uh, living as an outlaw, running for his life from Saul, who was trying to take his life. He's in the wilderness, and he's looking forward to the day, believing in God's promise that one day this was all going to be over. One day he was no longer going to be running for his life from Saul. One day he would be anointed and, and be reigning as king, as God promised, in his kingdom. Do you think that this is what he expected? Do you think that this is what he had in mind? Or do you think that as he was looking forward to those times in his, in his head, he was thinking to himself, you know, once this stage is over, and once I, once I get my kingdom established, then we'll be good. And then, you know, maybe he had these plans in mind of how it was going to go, and how it was going to reign, and the changes that he wanted to see uh, for the good of his brothers, and of his people, and his nation. But instead, this is what he goes through. I think it's an experience that a lot of us can identify with and empathize with. We all go through times, you know, I remember whenever I was young, I thought I had it all figured out. I thought I had it all figured out. I thought, you know what, whenever I'm the pastor of a church, this is how things are going to go. <laughs> or maybe whenever you're young, you know, you think to yourself, man, whenever, whenever I'm done with this class and I get onto that class in college, uh, or, or I'm in this year, then the, these plan, I've got these dreams and plans and it's going to be rolling. They're going to be working out just fine. And then I'll really be living. Or maybe you think, once I graduate, or maybe once, once I finally get this job, or once I uh, get into this kind of a house to live in, or once I can finally someone to date who's like this, whatever else it might be, we think, once I get there, then I'll be set, right? Then, then things will be going smoothly. I've got plans. I'll know what I'm doing, but I just got to get past all these problems I'm having now. But then what happens? You get that job, or you get to move to that city, or you purchase that home, you get that, that, that dream person that you want to date or maybe marry. And you know what? Then all these other problems spring up. 
you finally get that position, right? Like the dog chasing after the car. You finally catch the car, you get it, and, it, and then all these other things come up, all these, all these new problems. That's what's happening to David here. He looked forward, he dreamed, he planned, and now he's getting it, and now he's not dealing with a tyrant coming for his life, but he's dealing with renegade generals in his own army going off and assassinating someone that he had just made a peace agreement with. He's dealing with assassins coming to him with the head of his rival, right? A lot of things which, if not maneuvered well, dealing with a lot of wicked men and fools where if he does not lead and use wisdom and discern through it all well, it can delegitimize or disrupt or, or completely dismantle the kingdom that God has just given him. He's got all these different problems and issues he's dealing with. But as we're going to see as we, as we continue moving on, and as we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the kingdom endures. And here's why. Number one, because of God. Always number one, because of God. Because God uh, sustained it. But number two, because through his wilderness experiences, David didn't just dream, but he learned. He didn't just dream about how much better life is going to be one day. He didn't just sit around and say, if only. But instead, he learned. And the wisdom that he learned informed him in this time now, which is why he navigated through these various different scenarios and potential scandals uh, with so much wisdom. And I think it's wisdom and lessons that can apply to us today and that we can learn from. I'm going to give you, there's two lessons that, uh, that I see in, uh, here in this story that we can learn, and it's, it's two couplets. The first thing we learn about is of fools and folly. We learn about of fools and folly, and then we're going to learn about of justice and redemption. So of fools and folly, and of justice and redemption, and how wisdom guides us through it all and what it teaches us. So let's look at of fools and folly. Like I said, this is a really interesting story. There's uh, some new characters. There's some old characters. There's this interesting little piece there where in one little paragraph it tells us about a surviving son of Jonathan who was crippled because of an accident. His name was Mephibosheth, and that's all it tells us. And then it just moves on with this story. There's a lot going on here. But the primary actors in this story are, number one, obviously David, but then these two guys that we just met. We hadn't heard of them up until this point, but they are... Uh, but there are these two guys named uh, Bana and Rechab, okay? They were, uh, they were some of the, the leading warriors for Ishbosheth. Some of his leading warriors, and I love the subtlety of biblical narrative. It usually doesn't just come straight out and tell us that someone was a fool or someone was a coward, but instead, through giving us details of the story or maybe repeating and highlighting certain elements of a story, it's trying to tell us and alert us to, you know, these guys aren't uh, the cream of the crop. And that is what this 2 Samuel 4 is telling us about uh, Rechab and Bana. All the subtle details of the story are trying to tell us, like I said before, these are not the cream of the crop. These are not the most trustworthy characters. In fact, these guys are really a couple of fools, and they're a couple of cowards. It tells us that, number one, in the subtle details of, like, it doesn't really care to tell us much about these guys and the history in the past other than their names and, like, what tribe they, they came from, like, who they're, like, just their basic details, right? Beyond that, not much more is worth knowing about them. But then on top of that, whenever it tells us the story of how they went and assassinated their boss, they went and assassinated Ishbosheth, 
Did you notice how it kind of repeats the story? It says, so they went to Ishbosheth's house, and they went during the middle of the day. Ishbosheth must have been one of those kind of guys who he lives by his routine. You know, he's very predictable. It says they went during his midday nap. So he, apparently he was the kind of guy, he, he always has his midday nap, so they show up during his midday nap. And it says they went and they stabbed him in the stomach, assassinated him while he was in his bed, in his bedroom, taking his nap. It tells us that twice. It tells us what they did, and then it says it again. It says they went and they stabbed him while he was sleeping, and then they beheaded him. Why does it tell us that twice? Did you notice that in, a, in the third paragraph in, in verses 5 through 8? Why does it bother to repeat us? Well, like I said, these are some of the subtle ways that biblical narrative uh, works to highlight someone's foolishness and folly. Here, what it's highlighting is not just their foolishness to go and assassinate their boss, uh, but it highlights what, what uh, cowardly assassins and what cowardly warriors these two men were. They went and they assassinated him while he was sleeping in his own bed, took advantage of knowing his schedule, knowing that he was in his midday nap, to go and take his life. And then, and then to disgrace him by beheading him so they could bring his, his head to David. These are the kind of men that, uh, that Rechab and Bano were. But here's the really interesting part. They're fools and they're cowards. We get to know that because the text tells us that. But what does David know about them? It doesn't tell us that, he, that these guys have a, a reputation, that they are someone he would know about, like Abner. They come to him seemingly as strangers. So he doesn't know their background like we do. Right, he, uh, but they come to him with the head of Ishbosheth, his enemy, and notice how they present it to him in verse eight. It says they brought him the head. They're very proud of themselves, and they're excited to present it to David because Ishbosheth would have been his opponent. They said, "Here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who intended to take your life." Now we also know that's a lie, right? Because it said Ishbosheth had given up. So they're liars too. Your enemy who intended to take your life. Today, the Lord has granted vengeance to my Lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. Another lie, because we know that there's more of Saul's offspring living, right? It's, uh, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's crippled son. So they're liars, but then notice how they present it. They say, the Lord has granted you vengeance. What are they saying? What they're doing here is they're sort of theologizing what they had done. They're theologizing and trying to put a nice religious uh, uh, covering over their lies, their cowardice, and their foolishness. By coming to him and not really just presenting, saying, we were channels of God's grace to you, but saying, we are God's grace to you, right? They, they, they try to wrap it in the language of the Lord's redemption, but really what they're trying to come and do with presenting the head and, and, and using all this nice religious language is say, you owe us now. Isn't that what they are doing? We've seen this play out several times now in the stories of First and Second Samuel, how in these chaotic times, there are, um, there are wicked men who will try to take advantage of those chaotic times to uh, benefit themselves. We saw that in a lot of different ways. We saw that with Abner in the story before this. We saw this in the story of the Amalekite, which is what David's referring to at the very beginning of Second Samuel who ran, who, who had uh, pillaged some of the treasures off of uh, Saul's dead body, ran to David so he could present them to David and say, look, Saul, your enemy was dead, and I'm the one who finished him off. He did that because he thought that he was going to uh, benefit himself in some way. He thought he was going to get himself maybe a nice reward, maybe a sum of cash, maybe a nice new position 
in David's kingdom now that he had been the one to off his enemy. That's the exact same thing that these guys are doing here, but they're wrapping it in that religious language, theologizing what they had done. And here's where we learn our first big point, which is this. Fools masquerade as faithful behind theologizing their sin. That's the first thing that we learn in this story. Fools masquerade as faithful behind theologizing their sin. Behind high words of doctrine and intellectual uh, sounding uh, statements, actually hiding deficiencies in character or wicked actions. Let me give you a couple of different examples of how people can do this. There are people who will do theologizing to justify unrighteousness. We hear this all the time in our day and age. Theologizing is saying, well, this text here, whatever it might be speaking on, some hot-button topic that we like to debate on maybe, this text here was really only for that time and place. You know, that behavior was something that they looked down on in that day and age, but we know today that that kind of behavior is okay in our society. It's something that we've moved on from. You know, whenever Paul taught people about how this is how the church should operate in leadership, or this is how relationships and marriage and so on should look like, he was just speaking into that context, but we have moved beyond it. Because don't you think that God wanted us to, to move beyond these things? People try to make very intelligent-sounding arguments, theologizing. Once again, uh, uh, putting forward ideas and propositions that are not based on God's wisdom, but instead are man's ideas in order to justify unrighteousness. These are those who are, uh, quote-unquote, enlightened, who will lecture based upon human reason rather than upon God's revealed knowledge. So there are those who will theologize to justify unrighteousness. There are those who will do theologizing to hide sin and folly. Uh, these are the kind of people who will say, well, you know, I have, I have learned the true gospel. I have learned uh, the, the grace-centered gospel. And so uh, whenever you talk to me about sin and whenever you talk to me about avoiding sin and temptation, fighting off temptation, uh, killing sin, and, and, and so on, I know that, you know, you're really starting to slide into some legalism. And I don't want to be a legalist, so I, I don't like all those rules so much. It is those who would like to avoid the law of God and the commands of the Scripture, uh, which call us to radical obedience to God's Word and God's law, who will turn somewhat of a blind eye to, to our sins and, and, and those areas that we might see as, uh, you know, it's kind of a gray area, but I don't want to be a legalist, so, so it's okay if we tiptoe somewhat into that gray area. Theologizing in order to justify. I don't want to be a legalist in order to justify sin, folly, and so on. These would also be those who would, because they have become so aware of their own knowledge and so aware of their wisdom and, and their positions, the kind of people who would say, in response to maybe uh, uh, something which is a, a, a stand of truth, those who would say, well, that's what the other tribe would say. That's what the other side says. Maybe if we speak upon the importance of justice, upon the importance of addressing injustice, those who would say, well, you're starting to sound a little woke, right? And we can flip that around as well. 
Maybe whenever we start to emphasize the importance of following God's word and, and doing justice according to what God's word says is justice rather than what the world says, people say, oh, we're starting to sound a little bit like those fundamentalists. These are those who will theologize in order to hide sin and folly, holding us back from instead of, uh, of being concerned about what one tribe or another says, instead, what does God's word say? And let's follow it and apply it, no matter what tribe it looks like. These are those who think in very simplistic and very reactionary ways. Let me give you a third category of those who theologize. Those who theologize to boost the self. This one can kind of overlap with the previous one, but these are those people who are the, sound, the, the self-appointed defenders of the faith, who love to correct others and who love to correct uh, people's theology and who love to be the ones with the right answer. And no, look, I love good theology and I love right answers. I love the truth, but we can do so in a spirit that lacks any charity. We can do so not in order because we love the truth and we genuinely want to help someone and, and, and teach someone, but we can instead do it in harshness. We can do it with severity. We can do it to boost our own self and position. And once again, we can condemn the positions of others or even uh, or, or, or another person without any charity or humility in understanding our own capacity for occasionally being wrong. Here's what this means for us. If fools hide their folly, pretend to be faithful by theologizing, what we need to do is this. We need to discern between the fools and the faithful whenever we are hearing and listening to the voices in our culture, even the voices in church or church religious culture around us. We need to become the kind of people who can discern between the fools and the faithful and also be discerning in yourself as well. Discern in the voices that you are listening to out there and also be discerning in yourself. Now, how do we do that? What is the difference between true theology and theologizing sin or theologizing foolishness as I talk about? So the difference between true theology, which I love, we all ought to love and we all ought to desire for, and, and, and see as a lifelong project versus theologizing. The difference is this. We could, we could spend a series on this, but let me give you one simple test. You know, what did, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Um, what, what was it in the Sermon on the Mount? It might have been another place. But he said, you will know them by their fruits. Okay? What are the fruits? True theology that is that project where we try to learn more true knowledge about God. It's relational in the same way that you desire to know true knowledge, in the way that you desire to, to grow in a deeper relationship with your spouse, with your best friends. You want to know them more, and in knowing them more, what do you do with that, with that information, that knowledge? You use it to love them better. Theology works the same way. True theology is a project where we, where we endeavor to get to know God more truly, and we get to know that true knowledge in greater uh, depth and detail and capacity so that we might love him more. True theology, therefore, the test is this, draws us into greater worship and obedience to God. It is not something that becomes a tool to justify our sins and our failures, saying, well, we don't want to be legalists or to uh, start to compromise with the world and their positions and say, well, 
maybe that's not really a gospel issue, so we can perhaps compromise with this value of our culture in the world. No, that's not what true theology does. It draws us into greater worship and ever greater obedience to God, because as we grow in knowledge of him, we desire to love him better with that knowledge, and we love God by obeying him. In contrast, the fruit of theologizing is this. Rather than increasing our worship and obedience, it increases pride. It increases hard-heartedness. Though those who do theologizing in order to justify unrighteousness might claim that it is in fact the opposite, that it is more open-minded and soft-hearted, friends, the truth is this, that theologizing produces hard-heartedness. What does it produce hard-heartedness towards? God's Word. And it produces and increases disobedience. The commentator who, uh, you've heard his name several times, I've been drawing his work a lot for this series. The commentator Dale Ralph Davis said this. He said, we must beware. When we explain things theologically, we may be simply using God, using him as an argument, manipulating him for our, uh, for our convenience to keep from submitting to his grace or to his law. Friends, we need to be discerning whenever we listen and consider the voices around us, voices in our culture and even voices in the church, to, to ask, is this true knowledge of God that leads to greater worship and obedience, or is this theologizing? Is this foolishness? Is this pontificating based off of human ideas? We need to be discerning and listening to those voices, but we need to be also sharply discerning in ourselves, sharply discerning in ourselves, looking at our own lives and saying, am I justifying foolishness? Am I acting like the fool who masquerades as faithful by manipulating God's word in order to hide my own folly? So this is the first thing that we learn about here in this story. But then we look on and we learn about justice and redemption. Consider how whenever these two men came to David and they came to him with their high words, talking about how the Lord had delivered David from his enemy as they held the head of Ishbosheth that they had slain. David didn't fall for it, not even for a second. He immediately sees through these guys, and he speaks a word of truth and of justice over them. Why was David so immune to their theologizing and flattery? How is he so immune to it? How did he see through it? Like we said, David was taught wisdom. Wisdom is what helped him to see through it. But specifically, what do we mean by that? Here's what we mean. You see, Rechab and Bana, like I said before, are subtly suggesting that they were David's redeemers. Like they were using theologizing terms. They were trying to put a religious covering over it. But that's really what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, we are your redeemers here, right? So now you owe us something. We delivered you from your enemy. So what are you going to give us in return for it? But David saw right through that. Look at his response. Here's why he saw right through it. Because he said this. It said, David answered them, as the Lord lives, the one who has redeemed my life from every distress. Let's just pause there. That is why David saw through it. This is the wisdom that David had learned. Go back. Remember the years that David had spent as an outlaw in the wilderness. All the battles that he had to go through, not just against the Philistines, uh, his, his enemies, but also against his own brothers, whenever Saul the tyrant was chasing after him, and how God had delivered his life over and over and over again, how God had protected him from even falling into sin and folly himself. 
He was able to look over his past and through his wilderness experiences and through his initial experiences as king, he has reflected on, looked at how God, he, he saw God come through here and God come through here and God come through here and God save me here and God deliver me here and God pull me out of this distress. He saw how over and over and over again, it was the Lord who redeemed his life, as he said, from every distress. That is the wisdom he learned, which was able to help him see through and discern through the nice-sounding, theologizing words of Rechab and Bena. Here's our second big point for today. Wisdom teaches us that every redemption is from God. Wisdom teaches us that every redemption, every deliverance we might experience, every breakthrough, every blessing is from God ultimately. Have you ever experienced redemption in your life? I'm not just talking about your salvation, but I'm talking about all those other moments where God redeems your life, or in other words, delivers your life from distress, where God comes through, where you've been in a tough situation, whether it be in family, whether it be in your career, whether it be in, 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 in something else, whether it be an internal struggle that you were wrestling through, whether it be something that you were dreading that you didn't know if you would be able to survive it, the worst case scenario happens and God brings you through it. Have you been through a number of distresses, but God delivered you through them and now you have all these moments to hold up and to look at and say, it has been the Lord who has redeemed me from every distress. It's important that you take note of all of these moments. It's important that you remember these things. That's what David did. Whenever you go and read the Psalms, you can see and read how over and over and over again, David uh, remembered how God redeemed his life here, and God saved his life here, and God uh, crushed his enemies for him here. He remembered all those things. And then, whenever he was presented with someone who tried to give him a counter-narrative, who said, David, we're your redeemers. David, we're the ones that you should really have gratitude for. David, we're the ones that you should really put some trust in. He was able to refute it. He was able to say, nope. I know that's not the truth. In our world and in our culture, we have a lot of people who would like to come to us and say, we are your redeemers. I am the one who can deliver you from every distress. You might have people in in your own life, just in your own interpersonal relationships, who would maybe like to try to manipulate you and try to gain some control over you by selling you that narrative that I'm the one that you have to depend on, I'm the one that you have to rely on. Sometimes these are family members, sometimes these are so-called friends who really shouldn't be friends, who would manipulate us in those ways. If instead you have the wisdom that comes from God that tells you, no, the Lord is my redeemer from every situation, you'll be freed from those toxic relationships. Beyond that, in our, in our culture more broadly, whether it be uh, leaders in, in business, whether it be leaders at your school, or whether it, be economic, whether it be civic and political leaders who would tell us, I have the answers, I have the plan, I have the power, I am the one who can deliver you from all your distresses. I am the one who can relieve you from all the things that you are worried about and give you the answer to your problems. Christians who have been equipped with the wisdom of God can see through those counter-narratives. And respondents said, no, it is the Lord who has redeemed my life from every distress. This is an absolutely essential, uh, not just skill, but virtue that Christians must develop today. 
Because there are many people out there, whether they be interpersonal toxic relationships or whether they be politicians, who want to gain our allegiance and want to gain our complicity to give them more and more control in the lie that they have all the answers and they can provide for all of our needs. But instead, we should be like David who recognized that every redemption he experienced was from the Lord. Wisdom taught him this. Number one, he says, I think it's interesting that he said, as the Lord lives. David recognized through all of his redemptions and through all the times that he had been delivered from distress that he served a God who lives. And what he means by what that means is he serves a God who is active and who intervenes in the affairs of men. David did not serve a God made of wood or stone. He did not serve a God that he had to uh, bring sacrifices to and so on, but who was never able to have the capacity and power to act, to intervene, to actually come through in his, in his power and deliver. But our God, because as David said, lives, it means that he is not just a God who is there and who is distant. What he means by that is that he is the God who is there and who is intimately here and who is involved in our affairs, who comes through in his power, and who sustains us by his presence. That's what David says, as the God, as the Lord who lives. That's the kind of Lord who you have. The Lord who lives, who is here, who is near, who intervenes, and recognizes that his presence here is not ambivalent, but his presence here is saving. His presence here is delivering. His presence here is redemptive rescuing us out of all of our distresses, being with us through them until he, he does rescue. What does this do in us? And what should we do with this wisdom? What we should do with this wisdom that tells us that every redemption is from God is develop the gratitude that nurtures fidelity. David was faithful to the Lord. He had fidelity to the Lord because he was grateful remembering how God had delivered him all those times. That is what we need as well, to have that wisdom to, and, and to be discerning. We must develop that kind of a gratitude of remembering that all God, done, God has done for us so that it would nurture a similar faithfulness in ourselves as well. On top of that, David's gratitude and folly, uh, and gratitude, not folly, David's gratitude and fidelity protected him from their folly. It gave him discernment. And instead, what he was able to do is instead of falling in for their counter-narrative, he was able to execute justice on these wicked men, these foolish cowards, these liars. Because that's what he did. He remembered that time before, whenever the Amalekite had come to him with supposedly good news of Saul's death. The stories are almost perfect parallels. If you go back and read chapter 1 and then chapter 4. The, it, the narrative is trying to tell us this is a section. This is an important section in these two parallel stories. So David remembers that, and he says, if that's what I did to that guy, shouldn't I do the same to you? He calls in the young men, and they execute him. It said they cut off their hands and their feet. In other words, the tools of action, right, what, what they used in order to commit their sin, and he hung it up at the city gate to be, uh, to be a, uh, a symbol and an image to warn all others who would try to follow in the footsteps of Bana and Rechab all those who try to follow in the fool's folly rather than in the wisdom of God. He executes justice. And in that, there's a glimmer of hope. You have these two uh, just morons, honestly. 
You have these two cowardly, just despicable characters. No redeemable qualities in them presented to us. And we see justice done on them. And maybe you see that in contact, you're like, all right, well, that, that's great. It's, it's a small sign of hope, and it's a small example of justice, but it f- points forward to a greater example of justice. It points forward to greater justice, which is this, which is that Christ, who is our king, will enact justice on the fools, the liars, the cowards, the tyrants, and the wicked of the earth. We see the wise king, David, who was able, in his wisdom, to see through their sin, to see through those foolishness, and it, it was nothing for him to then say, here's your judgment, executing it in his wisdom and in his authority. That's a small picture of what Christ will do and even is doing, is, is doing now, in a far greater scale, and in a far, and, and, on, and on a cosmic scale. Jesus, our king, because he achieved victory over sin and death in his resurrection, because he is our Lord and Redeemer who lives. He is now uh, not seated, but standing on the, at, by the throne of justice. Do you remember uh, Stephen's vision uh, in, in Acts chapter 7? After preaching his, his message to the Pharisees and Sadducees, they stone him. And he looks up into heaven, and, and he, he sees this vision of Jesus as he is dying. And he calls out, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. That's imagery of God's Messiah, right? So his true leader and king, he says, and he is, notice that he says, and he is standing at the right hand of the Father. Standing at the throne was a position of executing judgment, which is why it said that whenever, after Stephen said that, they raged and started to throw stones all the more. Because here's what he was saying. Though you are extinguishing my life, Christ, the true king, is standing in judgment over you right now. Jesus, our king, is standing in judgment over the fools and tyrants and wicked of the earth, even right now. Though they rage and though they think they have power, And though they think they might be able to escape any justice at all, even by their very actions, they are only adding to their sentence, which he will uh, righteously execute upon them. And in doing so, bring justice to his faithful children who are oppressed, whose lives are taken, and who are given suffering by the actions of those tyrants. Justice will be done to them, and they will receive their reward in heaven for their suffering as the wicked receive their punishment. David's example of justice here is a small pointer and hope towards the justice that we long for, that we desire to see happen and carried out against the wicked of the earth today who oppress God's people. So if I'm going to develop gratitude that produces faithfulness, how do I do that? The only way that you're going to be able to do that, develop that kind of a gratitude that you're able to remember and and to keep you um, anchored, right, throughout any chaotic times, is by considering this, that justice that Christ our King carries out upon the wicked of the earth, how are we spared from it? Why are we who are fools caught up in our own folly very often, who have broken God's law, who have sinned and rebelled against God, 
Why aren't we also caught up in that judgment? Why do we have any hope of being spared and delivered from it? Because of this, Jesus, our King, our Redeemer, not only delivers us from all of our distresses, but he has also delivered us from the greatest danger, the greatest distress, trial, danger of them all, which is the condemnation for our own sin. Whenever our King and Redeemer gave up his life for us, the condemnation, the sentencing that we deserve, what we owed for our debt of sin, he paid in his own flesh and blood as he gave up his life on the cross so that the dirtiness that we carried in our souls, so that the unrighteousness that we harbored in our hearts can be washed away, that dirt can be turned from gross and depraved to our souls and hearts being made white as snow, the the scriptures say, washed in the blood of the Lamb, who is our King Jesus Christ. Because of his paying the ultimate price for us, we have a hope of being among those who are the redeemed and not the the executed. We have the hope of being among those who are among the delivered and not among those who are the condemned. Because of what our king has done for us, giving up his life for us and then winning the battle for us in his resurrection and winning the battle for us even now placing his enemies and our enemies under his feet. Whenever we are grounded in that reality and anchored in that truth, that good news of the gospel of what Jesus has done for us, then it will produce in us gratitude. It will produce in us a gratitude for then, if he saved me, if he went to such an extent uh, to even go to the cross to save my life, then, man, look around at my life now and all these things I was taking for granted for, if he was willing to do that for me, And certainly he's willing to save me from all of these distresses as well. If he was able to go to those lengths to forgive my sin, then even whenever I've fallen into sin today and I feel overwhelmed with guilt, if he did that for me, if he went to that extent, if he paid that price, then how could what I have done today hold me back from him? Or hold him back from me, should I say? That's the kind of gratitude that develops in us a faithfulness and wisdom So we see through the counter-narratives of the world and we instead follow God faithfully. As we conclude, I just want to think about this. In the next chapter, we're going to see the final, the the fulfillment and the consummation of David's kingdom. It's a glorious story. But before we get to that, I just want to think about this. Consider the incredible amount of opposition through Saul, through Abner and Ishbosheth, through these men, Think about all the frustrations that David had to endure. Betrayals. His own soldiers or generals acting as fools and and wickedly. Think of all the hindrances that he went through. The the time that he was caught up with the Philistines, uh, thinking that they were about to bring him into battle with them against the Israelites. Think of all the incredible obstacles, frustrations, and hindrances that David has been through. Yet, His kingdom is about to be established in full. There's great encouragement in this. There's great encouragement and hope in this as we look at the kingdom of God on earth now. In a a sense, the kingdom of David that has continued now being established through Jesus Christ. We are living in that kingdom now, and we see obstacles, challenges, opposition, frustration, hindrances, and, and setbacks. 
And sometimes we are tempted and we find ourselves starting to think cynically. And we find ourselves starting to lack any hope at all or be discouraged. But we should look at David's story and understand that it's just a small picture and a sign pointing forward to how Jesus, the king's kingdom, operates. Take heart because we learn that no power can overcome the kingdom, as we saw whenever Abner challenged David. We see that no folly can thwart the kingdom, as we see in how Joab's foolishness, David's general, didn't undermine the kingdom. And we also learn how no injustice can establish his kingdom, as we see when David sees through the evil actions of the Amalekite and Bana and Rechab. So take heart and take encouragement in our king whose victory is his. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would help us to open our hearts before you so we might see and be able to discern the ways that we have been perhaps justifying sin playing soft with sin, um, maybe playing around with temptation a little too much because we've been theologizing our actions. We've been taking advantage of your grace. Lord, perhaps help us to see how we've been following after the voices of fools who have been masquerading as faithful. Help us to repent of these things understanding that Christ our King has paid for all of our sin so there is no fear when we open our heart to you. Let it develop in us not just uh, a repentance and obedience but also a gratitude and seeing just how much your love sustains us and cleanses us and protects us and delivers us. How, Lord, we have experienced nothing but your love and your goodness even in the darkest of times. Let that experience of receiving this incredible, infinite love cultivate and work up in us an incredible gratitude that produces faithfulness so that we don't fall into the traps of fools, so that we're able to discern and get freedom from toxic relationships, from wannabe tyrants who desire control over us. And that we might instead say that we joyfully only submit to Christ our King. Father, encourage our hearts as we look around in, in, in a world where in our own lives and in the lives of others, we see suffering because of the actions of wicked and sinful men. Give us encouragement, Lord, that there is a reward for your faithful. There is a reward that goes back and turns even our sorrows into joys because it is so infinitely wonderful. And there's also a joy in knowing that the wicked and that the evil, that the tyrants, the sinners, the liars, and the cowards will receive their due as you execute your perfect and righteous judgment. Father, we pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus, who stands in judgment and who we long to see come again.